0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage ban, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? I think one of the things, or I guess two things that Hosea is hammering home to us is that we do not know God as we ought to know God, and we do not know ourselves as we ought to know ourselves. And so what that means is we devalue God in who he is, in his sovereignty and his majesty and his glory. This is what we normally do. And what we also learn is we tend to puff ourselves up thinking we're more righteous and holy than we truly are. I think an example we can find of this outside of Hosea is where Joshua surveys the land. And it's kind of a, a significant event where Joshua's getting his, his mind around the battle plan in Joshua 5. And all of a sudden there's this warrior who stands before him with his sword drawn. Joshua, you know, you, you admire his courage as that's something that characterizes who he is. Stands before the man, says, Are you for us or against us? In other words, are, are we going to war or, or are we allies here? What, what's going on? And the man simply says, No. I mean, it's kind of a comical response. You say, Well, I gave you two options. What do you mean by no? And what Joshua realizes is this is the commander of the Lord's army, as the angel of the Lord identifies himself. And what Joshua has to realize is he serves a God who cannot be tamed. And isn't that what we fundamentally want? Isn't this fundamentally what Satan holds out for Adam and Eve? You can tame this God. You can reign him in. You can set the terms as to how this God will deal with you, and so be it. And that's one of the things Hosea now is driving home. Something Joshua had to realize going into war, something Adam and Eve realized on a very tragic day, and something that Hosea is calling to Israel and to us. We serve a dangerous God in the sense that we cannot control him, we cannot manipulate him, we cannot put him in a box, we cannot dictate how he works, but instead we must bow our knees before him. And so we may say, well, why is that so, so, so good? I mean, this sounds a little scary. How do we know that serving this God who is untamable is actually something that's encouraging and good uh, for us as the Lord's creatures and his redeemed? And so as we go through this, we're going to walk through the different sections of Hosea 5, uh, verses 8 through 15, and then 6, verses 1 through 3, where we see Israel uh, changing their tune and, and coming to realize who their God is. So we have first sounding the alarm, sought by the lion, and lastly, seeking the Lord. And so let's begin with the sounding of the alarm. And prior to this... We have the warning that Israel is facing judgment. And so we, we, we find in verse 8 that now there is that call of understanding that there's a nation coming into the land. So the sounding of, of the alarm and the blowing of, of the shofar uh, would recommend or, or would call for Israel to come together and to make war is also something that would call Israel together for worship. And so when, when we hear the trumpet and the shofar going together, this is a call for holy war. That's what Israel was called to do in the land. When Joshua stands before the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, Joshua is being commissioned to go and to engage in that holy war. As Israel subdues Canaan, the intention was for it to be a new Eden, a holy sanctuary where God communes in the midst of his people, a place that manifests final judgment as Israel goes to war by the command of God, literally engaging in true warfare, exterminating nations by the command of God so that they can set a place That's worthy of the Lord's presence. The temple, tabernacle, the priesthood, all these things picturing the true heaven. So when you think about Israel having that mandate, Israel going into war, beginning with Joshua, surveying the land and sizing up the opponents, now we have the sounding of the alarm, but it's not for Israel to go to war. It's for the nations coming against them. And so this is telling us that the exile that Israel endured is not accidental. Hosea is giving us a a supernatural interpretation, right? This is how we should view history, God's providence, working, operating. And so Hosea is saying, listen, when you see the nations coming against you, God warned you, you were told. This is not appropriate. This is not how we live. This is not what we do. But Israel's engaged in all sorts of idolatry, all sorts of literal adultery, all sorts of immoral fornication, all sorts of things going on that they've passed off as worship. And the Lord's saying, this is not right. This is not what we do. And so when, when we hear what's wrong, we have these designated names of a city now. If, if we hear this, we might be tempted to skip over it, but these are very significant cities in Israel's history. Because this recalls for us a very, very tragic time in Israel's history. If you remember the story in Judges 19 with the Levite and his concubine, a story in the context of the history of Israel that's almost on par with Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is outside uh, the, the Lord's plan. You know, it's there prior to this. It's a city that's overrun with immorality. But when we have the, the Levite going to the, the tribe of Benjamin and how he is, is greeted and, and the immorality that goes on there, this is a, a story that's recounting that very thing that Hosea is calling to our attention. And we have here the start with Gabaia, which is basically the city that's recorded for us in nineteen verse twenty-two, it's a city that's fallen, a place where we have conflict with David and and Saul. It's a place where Judah um, has likely lost this city in Second Kings of uh, verse fourteen. So this is telling us that this is with Israel, and it's something where we we have this city where you have. Uh, the temptation with Ahaz to make a treaty with Assyria. And so there's a lot of things going on here where they're not resting in the Lord. Ramah. We have a declaration of this in Judges 19 where uh, maybe the highlight and, and maybe the tragedy is Samuel's buried in this city. But this is also a city that's designated there in Judges 19. It's also a place that recounts mourning, weeping, where you have Jeremiah 31.15 recounts Rachel weeping from her tomb, weeping for her children and what has become of them as they've been carried off into exile. In fact, Matthew plays on this with uh, Pharaoh executing uh, the, the young children, to and under, where it's recalled there in Matthew 2 of Rachel weeping for her children, grieving the loss. So there's a, some history going on here that, that's not positive. It's a crying out, weeping, sorrow. Going on, Baal. Remember we looked at this and we saw from Amos 5 verse 5 how uh, Baal is equivocated to Avon. And as we made that correlation, it moves from house of God to house of iniquity. And so as, as we hear this, we, we notice that this is an incredible tragedy. That it's no longer house of God, presence of God, but it's house of iniquity. And this is a place where you have the tribes of Israel going up against the tribe of Benjamin to engage in an extermination. Because of the Benjaminites acting like the Sodomites. And literally that's what's going on. And as they go against this tribe, they exterminate this tribe. So what Hosea is doing here is he's calling to our attention. where Israel could say, oh, we're not that bad. We haven't fallen that far. Israel says, remember... When there was an immoral situation that happened in the context of Benjamin and how you assembled at these places. And so basically we're going backwards from the story in Judges 19 here with these cities being recalled. And the Lord's saying, remember when you were so outraged, you came together and said, this is not done in the land of God and we deal with this. Now he's saying, what's happened? You've embraced it. There, there's no desire to turn, and and so here's a, the proof where the Lord's saying there's been a precedent. You at one time acknowledged that precedent was wrong. Now you've slid even further down um, down the off the rails, if you will. You've engaged in more immorality, and you're not doing anything about it. And so the Lord's saying, do not be surprised when the nations come against you and I send them to engage in my holy war. And so what happens now? Well, we find that, you know, the promises of Deuteronomy 29 are basically being, or 28, 29, are are being worked out. Nations will come against them. They will not stand strong. Um, The Lord is the one who's going to, once again, redefine, reallot the land. And they're not going to have this place like they had it and enjoyed it. And so when, when we hear this, we find what's going on. <clears throat> Princes of Judah moving the landmarks. And, and we might say, well, that's just stealing land. What, what's the big deal of that, right? I mean, you're taking some land. What, why is that so bad? Well, in terms of the significance of Moses uh, saying this is immoral and not something that should be done, what is one doing when they move the boundaries of the land? Well, if you're familiar with Joshua and the distribution of the land... This is one's inheritance in the kingdom, if you will. And so it's, it's allotted by lots. Uh, you have the people having their particular districts or particular places of dividing up the land. So when you start moving boundaries, it's not just stealing land in the sense of real estate. It's stealing one's inheritance. It's, it's saying, I'm more worthy to have more of what God has given us than, than what you are. And so it's this entitlement that's trying to usurp the authority of God. And and you have the princes of of Judah who are supposed to defend the oppressed. They're supposed to care for the people. They're, They're supposed to want equity and justice. But they don't. They're the ones involved in stealing and seizing this land. They're taking Israelite inheritance. And so the Lord is saying, listen, All of what's going on here in this city, this is not right. This is not what should be going on. Uh, This is not what what we ought to be doing. Uh, This is something that's immoral. And so the Lord's using this again, calling it to their attention that they are not going to have life. But notice how the Lord plays on this now. What has designated Israel? When we think about the water events, right? We think of the Red Sea crossing, where they go, and they're clearly God's people. We think of the Lord providing water in the wilderness, you know, showing his sovereignty and his might over their circumstances. We think of Israel going through the, the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, again, showing that they are the Lord's people, putting the Canaanites in fright, where they go, whoa, what kind of God is this? Because it's presented, God just stacks up the water. It's not that he builds a dam, it's not that he's worried, it's basically like the Lord's playing Legos. I mean, that's really the, the picture there. It's just a child playing with a toy, even as the Jordan River's in flood stage. It's not a challenge. Now we find that those water events that protected Israel, we have the Lord no longer withholding that water that he turns it against Israel and says, basically what I've done to the nations, the fright I've put into them, I'm going to put into you. My wrath will be poured out like this water, this unrelenting event that has designated you as my people. And so clearly the Lord is making uh, quite evident that he's upset with his people. And they should not be surprised when his discipline comes against him and these nations come into their land. But we have then this this reminder of the Lord also identifying himself as a lion. Because when when we go on, we turn to verses 11 through 15. We have verse 11, where Ephraim, at this event, experiencing um, this turmoil, is brought to a place of oppression. They're crushed. And so the... The presentation is where you come against an enemy and, and the enemy's done. There, there's no fight left in them. They are finished. They're raising your white flag. Whatever you want to do to us, just, just do it. Let's get it over with. Let's be done. That's where Ephraim is at this point before the Lord. Now, we might say, oh man, how can the Lord do this to his people and break them in such a way? Well, what we've just covered Uh, Prior to this, not only in the context of chapter 5, but in prior weeks, we've heard a lot of evidence that the Lord has brought against his people. But he tells us something more that the ESV has cleaned up. And I don't know why the ESV has cleaned it up and other things. It's brought out the force rather explicitly. But what it literally means is it's not that Israel has gone after filth. It's pursued excrement. Um, and, and still that's being clean the the reality is you, you look at this and you say why would you want this right I, I mean when when you read this in the Hebrew text you're like what you have the God of heaven who gives you the land of milk and honey and you pursue what and and this is what you desire you you think this is good you know you You look at it, and and you just think of an individual who's trying to get nourishment from a a swamp that's that's all green and nasty, and it's just stagnant water, and you can smell it. And and you look, and there's a clear spring, and you're saying, you know, you could just walk five feet and go over there and get some fresh water. And they go, no, 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 I want this swamp. I I want this mess. That's what's going on. And, And it's this clear picture of what sin really is, isn't it? that in our irrationality, we think, well, this will provide nourishment. This will provide life. But it doesn't. It doesn't provide life. But, but we become so deceived that we think, this is, this is good for me. And Hosea is saying, it's not. You think of Satan with Adam before the tree. That tree is good for you. You put God in his place. He learns rather quickly he did not. And so the Lord in verse 11 is saying, I crushed Ephraim. I own that. They're brought to a place almost of where there's there's no place to turn. And before you feel sorry for them, what have they done? They've pursued immoral things, thinking this will provide life, but it doesn't. Going on, he takes us even more where he says where Ephraim is. Ephraim and and, and what's going on? That, that is dry rot to the house of Judah. In other words, Judah is saying, what's that smell? A presentation without getting too graphic. Because again, this the ESV is kind of lightening this up. Um, maybe we don't want to know all of what this means. But basically, it, it's Judah continually smelling the gangrene from the north. I mean, that's that's really the the, the way to bring this into English. And you're looking at it. And it's, again, it's someone saying, oh, no, no, the wound's fine. And you're looking at it, and you're like, you need to get that treated. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on. You're saying, oh, no, no, it's fine. And you're like, no, no, it is not. You need to get that looked at. But that's what's going on here. Ephraim's saying, oh, no, no, we're fine. And the Lord's saying, basically, I continually inflict this push on it, and, and the wound gets nastier and nastier to the point where they have to actually understand that they're broken from their sin and saying, wow, this stuff really is destructive, and it really is harming me, and it's not good for me. So that's what the Lord's saying. So this discipline is not that the Lord is a sadist, right? People can read this and say, see, what kind of God is this? He's a sadist. He's cruel. He's mean. That's not the Lord saying, no, these people wanted their sin. I'm giving them their sin. They're not being broken by their sin. So I'm just going to give them everything they, they want so they can have the fullness of what this wound really is, what, what it leads to and the destruction of it. And so there is a real warning here for us to understand. We can look at the world and say, man, they have so much fun. Look at all the immorality they engage in. And it seems rather inconsequential. Isaiah is saying, don't deceive yourself. Life in Christ is true life. Don't go down that road thinking that somehow there's something more fulfilling, more joyful there. It's not. It's an open wound that's infested with gangrene. And we can put ourselves in a situation where we think receiving nourishment from a nasty, disgusting swamp is greater than the true water of life. That's what Hosea wants us to understand. Now, when he tells us this situation, he uses this language that, that again, it might be subtle, and, and we might wonder, well, you know, why, why is this so severe? What, what, what does this really mean? Why, you know, is this something that's really significant? But in verse 14, He uses lion two times. So he speaks of himself basically as a mature lion, and then the Lord uh, presents himself as a young lion, a cub. Now when we hear these things, we might think, okay, well, so the Lord's a a lion. We we understand this in Scripture. When he identifies himself as a young lion, identified uh, with Judah, and, and as he's this young lion coming against them, and as he's carrying them off, what did, the Lord, or what did Jacob promise in Genesis 49? That the Lord, like the young lion, is going to bring victory for his people. He's going to be that messianic warrior who goes before his people. If you want to know about a dangerous God, this verse right here is presenting it. The very promise that the Lord made through Jacob to his sons is what the Lord is going to be to his people versus their defense. And so when these nations come against them, he's saying, listen, no one's going to rip you out of my mouth. No one's going to dare to come against me. I am that lion that you look at and you say, well, maybe we'll just let him go on, do his thing, and we'll just go about our business, right? That's the presentation here, that we're just going to let the lion go on his course. We're not going to mess with it because we know we're not going to win that battle. That's what the Lord is saying as he comes against Ephraim and Judah, no longer as one who's a defender in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, as his promise with the tribe of Judah. But he goes on. And as he says that no one will be able to rescue, this is an important thing. Because what does Ephraim want to do in verse 13? They, They want to appeal to Assyria. Very important point, when Isaiah interacts with Ahaz and Ahaz is tempted to make a covenant with Assyria, Isaiah says, Assyria is not going to save you. That's what the Lord's driving home right here in verse 14. Assyria is not going to save you. You can appeal to them, they can seem like they have a mighty army, but that mighty army is nothing compared to the Lord who's presented as this dangerous lion who comes against uh, his own people. And the Lord goes, and the Lord is one who's doing this for a purpose in verse 15. This is an important thing to put into context. We rip verse 15 out, then God does look like a sadist. But as the Lord returns to his place, what does he desire for his people? He wants his people to own their sin. Think about that. He's not saying pay for their sin. He's not saying work off the debt. Saying, I want them to own their sin. In other words, it's an acknowledgement of Lord, we, we've sinned grievously against you. We thought the swamp water and the wounds filled with gangrene were life. We understand it's not life. You are life. And that's the second side of this that they seek his face. Not out of convenience, right? Because Israel could say, oh, well, we, we worship God. We just kind of incorporated the Baals and some other traditions into our worship of God. And we still had the priesthood. We just incorporated some other things to make it more meaningful. The Lord's saying, no, you, you seek my face. In other words, this is that humility, flaying our hearts open before the Lord. Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned, O Lord. Psalm 32, recognizing your bones ache when you hold these sins in. That's what the Lord's saying, come to me, seek my face. I am the one who will restore because now we have the flip side of the Lion of Judah. that he's not one who's sadistic. He's not one who wants to see us suffer, but the one who brings ultimate true healing. Going on then, verses 1 through 3 briefly, when we find this this change of heart Israel saying they'll follow Benjamin going into their immorality we find now that there's a change of heart they're not going to redo what they did in Judges 19 we find what happens that Israel has this wonderful transition again it's a come, it's an invitation it's a command let us return to the Lord and so There's a consciousness, and yes, even as a Calvinist, there's a consciousness where they choose to pursue God. Now, why do they choose? Of course, it's by the grace of God, the power of the Spirit. But this is getting at the consciousness. So, So the consciousness is a reminder that in our hearts, in our fundamental desires, what does God want us to do? He wants us to pursue Him, to seek His face, to seek his wisdom. And notice what Israel owns. They own the reality that God has torn us. God is the one who has healed us. God is the one who has struck us down. God is the one who will bind us up, right? So they're understanding that the Lord has done this, but they're not seeking the Lord because they have some, you know, psychological uh, issue going on in terms of you know the different things we hear of kidnappers and people having their affections for their kidnappers and the different theories beyond that it's what we found in verse 15. the lord's doing this for a purpose that he will break them and as he breaks them they're recognizing they can no longer look to self and so it truly is a revival in the context of israel The Lord has brought us to a place where he's given us exactly what we wanted, but the Lord can also heal us. The Lord's disciplinary hand has been upon us, but the Lord can also bring us back. And so this is so encouraging when you hear this in Scripture because we've heard how far Israel has fallen. You read Judges 19 and and read that story, that narrative. It is tragic. And yet we find... That these people come back. The Lord is able to seek out those who are truly lost. Even if they were those who were his people who have rejected him. He can still seek them out. Bring them to a breaking point. Where they bow their knee before the living God. This is a profound profession in 6 verse 1. The Lord alone is the healer of the people. Not the Baals, not their idolatry, not Assyria, not the other lands, only the Lord. But as we go on, and we find with this promise that not only the Lord is the one who's able to to heal and to bring about this true redemption, we find that there's a reality in verse 3. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Is going out to shore as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers and the spring rains that water the earth. You hear the beauty of the water metaphor going on here? We've heard of the floodwaters coming against Israel, like the floodwaters that are going to judge them, the wrath of God being withheld. Now there's a change in this metaphor, a change in this analogy that the Lord's going to come to them as the spring showers. that This is not presented as something threatening. I mean, we, we can think of this in Montana where we have a dry season and then we have the spring showers that all of a sudden cultivate life and, and, and we see greenery and we see these things that that happen. That it's a reminder that there is life. I mean, you really... Get a feel for this in California if you drive around. There's a dry riverbed, and then all of a sudden you have the spring rains, the snow melts in the mountains, and then these rivers are roaring. The presentation here is that now, once again, there is life. There is something that provides hope, and this is what the Lord is doing. And so the Lord who came against them with his wrath and anger is the one who no longer tears and brings his judgment. And so we can find in verse 1 and 3 this assurance we come to the Lord he brings life the Lord has torn us down the Lord brings life. And so it's important to hear that in verses 1 and 3 in light of what we have in chapter 5. Now if you've noticed I've conveniently skipped over a verse here in chapter 6. 6 verse 2. You have what you have in Hebrew the you know you have one number then a number another number that adds significance, right? So, after two days, he will revive us. So that's one significant thing. and the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Think about the the profound statement here. Just generally, the Lord's going to revive us two days, rather quickly, is the intention. That you, you turn before the Lord. There's this restoration of the the relationship that God has done, seeking his face, recognizing the brokenness of sin. The Lord revives. And then the third day, going greater, showing this this everlasting blessing. He will raise us up, that we live before him, right? Isn't this what the Reformation says? Living before the face of God in terms of our, our life and how we ethically conduct ourselves. But how do we have this? This is something else that if we don't dig into the text, we, we can miss this. Because the Apostle Paul uses this language, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, citing the Septuagint uh, translation. Remember, that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Citing the Septuagint translation of Hosea 6, verse 2. We have Christ himself when he interacts with his disciples in Luke 24, verse 7. Speaking of being raised up on the third day. We need to think of a precedent prior to that where we think of Genesis 22. A a tragic event where Abraham is to sacrifice his son and the third day he looks up. This sort of echoes that. And what's the significance of that? Abraham's to sacrifice his son. What does Hebrews tell us? That he receives him back as a type of the resurrection. So we, we start taking these These points of information, Christ citing this, Paul citing this, and what's the significant event? The resurrection of Christ. So we find that the Lion of Judah is not one who just comes against his people to break his people, to destroy his people as some sort of a sick sadist. I'm going to redeem you only to destroy you. But it's the Lord who's doing this for a purpose and making explicitly what we have said by implication. That when the Lord is disciplining his people, it's not merely to destroy them or harm them, but to bring them to a place where they recognize life is only lived before the face of God. That's where life is found. And as we live it before the face of God, how do we enter into that relationship? Only by the definitive resurrection of Christ, where he overcomes death and sin once for all. That's what Hosea is holding out to his people. He's saying the land isn't life, the priesthood isn't life, the temple isn't life. All these things point to the reality of the plan of God, of bringing his people into the definitive and eternal rest that we enjoy in Christ and in Christ alone. And so when we ask that question then, why do we want a dangerous God? I think C.S. Lewis captures this well in the lion, the witch in the wardroom. When you have the beavers interacting with the sons of um, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Adam, and they're in their presence basically having a meal in their house. And you are wondering about what's going on in Narnia and the witch. And also Mr. Beaver talks about the, the greatness of this Aslan figure. And, and Susan says, well, you know, who's Aslan? And talks about Aslan being a lion. And Susan says, well, is, is this lion dangerous? And Mr. Beaver goes, oh, yeah, he's a lion. And so it's intended to be kind of comical. But what C.S. Lewis captures is the essence of what Hosea is telling us. We don't want a God who is tamable. We want a God who is king and who is sovereign. And that's his point. So he goes on and says, but he's a good lion. He's a good king. He rules over all of Narnia. And he's here to establish, you know, peace and and, and establish his ways, basically, is is the implication of what Mr. Beaver is saying, which is what Hosea is communicating. It's the wonder and the majesty of knowing that even as Joshua stands before the angel of the Lord, before us or against us? Now, you got it backwards, Joshua. It's not about me being for you or against you. It's about us being tuned in to the purpose of God. And recognizing that the Lord at times may frustrate us and he may discipline us and his hand may come against us. But Hosea is saying, don't get yourself in a situation where you have to have gangrene-infested wounds Where you think your your sin is providing so much joy. Because it's not. And Hosea wants us to understand when the Lion of Judah comes against us. He's not coming against us merely to destroy us. He's coming against us to break us. And to break us in a positive sense of making it so we pursue the face of the living God. Recognizing we cannot tame this God. Nor do we want to tame this God to do our will or to do our bidding. Because we are to do his will. To bring glory to his name. As we walk before his face. In the power of his resurrected Christ who has overcome. In the power of our redemption. As we walk in the power of his spirit. As we walk as his redeemed people. Let us then continue to turn to our Lord. Knowing that while the Lion of Judah is untamable, we cannot reign him in. We must see him for who he is. The healer, the empowerer, the redeemer, the vindicator, the great surgeon. Who overcomes death so we have life in him. Let us never lose sight of that fundamental promise. Our life is found in our redeemer and in Him alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is U R C B URC E L G R A D E.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday until we meet again may the lord's blessing and peace be upon you